Good afternoon, everyone. Today, we're going to be discussing an article published in the Red Journal Neurosurgery entitled Thrombectomy Technique Predicts Outcome in Posterior Circulation Strokes Insights from the Star Collaboration. I'm your host today. My name is Rimmel Dosani. I'm a neuroendrovascular and cerebrovascular fellow at the University at Buffalo. We are glad to have a number of great guests and uh, uh, esteemed faculty joining us for the podcast here today to discuss this new publication. I would like to give all the faculty and guests an opportunity to go ahead and introduce themselves. Thanks so much for having me. My name is Alex Biota. I'm a neurosurgeon and division director for neuroendovascular surgery at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. Thank you. Hi, my name is Adam Arthur. I'm a professor of neurosurgery at the University of Tennessee Health Sciences Center and Sims Murphy Clinic in Memphis, Tennessee. Hi, I'm Oli Alawi. I'm a neurosurgery resident at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Thank you for the introductions. Um, Dr. Espiota is the senior author uh, on the paper. Uh, if you could have uh, yourself or somebody on your team uh, give us a, a brief a summary of the paper. Sure, absolutely. Again, thanks to the CNS for having us. I appreciate the opportunity to highlight this. And a big shout out to our STAR collaborators, uh, STARS International Network that began about a year ago. And I should mention Adam Arthur, our, our faculty for this is, is part of it. So thanks so much for doing that. And Ali and I are the co-founders. Um, and this really is, is the effort of many, many people, um, but we're happy to relay the important messages from that work. So the, the purpose of the investigation was to look at a, a current real world experience and practice treating posterior circulation LVO um, and looking specifically at the outcomes compared to the anterior circulation experience. Um, and then lastly, looking at predictors of good outcome. We have previously done work showing that the time to recanalization, in other words, the procedure time, irrespective of the time to presentation, time to the, to the angio suite, the procedure time itself was a very important factor in determining outcome for anterior circulation. And we had shown that direct aspiration technique had been faster than other techniques like centriver combined. And we had also shown that posterior circulation strokes uh, seemed to be more time dependent. In other words, they had less time uh, tolerance than the anterior circulation counterparts. So with that and uh, combine the experience of direct aspiration being a faster time to recanalization technique and that posterior circulation seemed to be more time sensitive we wanted to look at predictors of outcomes, namely uh, procedure technique. So we looked at our STAR database and this analysis was performed in the fall. At the time we had just over 3,000 patients. Now we have over 7,000 patients enrolled. So at the time of this analysis, we had about 350 posterior circulation acute LVO patients enrolled, uh, which represented 10% of the overall population. 80% of those were basilar occlusions, the remaining were vertebral basilar, as well as PCA occlusions. And in that um, multi-center international experience, which gathered data from 10 different centers, the three different techniques were looked at. One was a direct aspiration uh, used in 39%, stent retrieval 31%, and the combined or stent retrieval with aspiration 19%. So fairly uh, even distribution among those three techniques across those centers. 10% uh, of those had ICAD and required angioplasty and stenting. And overall, the experience showed that it was successful. So 81% of the time, the vessel was able to be recanalized. The complication rates were 6% and the symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage were 3%, which were identical to the anterior circulation experience. 
The, um, the outcomes, the good outcomes, modified ranking zero to two across the board are 31%. And the mortality, the 90 day mortality uh, was higher than the anterior circulation experience. So there are two areas that we focus on in the analysis. One was comparing the posterior circulation versus the anterior circulation. And we immediately identified some key differences. One is the posterior circulation patients definitely presented a much longer time interval from symptom onset to, to our presentation. And we've known that from previous studies. And we showed in the posterior circulation, although the recanalization uh, was successful at the same frequency, the outcomes were worse, meaning the, the likelihood of good outcome was definitely lower, and the mortality rates were higher, although the complication rates, the procedural complication rates were the same. And lastly, when we looked at predictors of outcome, we looked at the, diff the three different techniques, and we found that direct aspiration was significantly associated with a lower procedure time and a faster time to recanalization. Um, and it was also associated with a better outcome overall. And the interesting thing beyond that, and this is the work that Ali did hit with this statistical analysis, when, when controlling for both procedure time and a degree of recanalization, actually the technique, direct aspiration, still had a benefit that was associated with a better outcome, even when controlling for all those other factors. So that's a brief overview. Um, Ali, did you want to add anything before we take any questions? No, that's that's a great summary. The only thing, um, we, additional or the thing that you pointed out last is that um, we we did control for the procedure time to see if that's the only thing that can explain the effect of aspiration compared to center retriever, and indeed when we control for procedure time, we dilute the effect or the the positive effect or protective effect of aspiration compared to center retriever, but that does not completely remove that effect. So there's still an effect. Uh, aspiration patients, patients treated with aspiration do better than patients treated with center fevers, even with comparable procedure times. Great, thank you uh, for the excellent summary of the paper. Um, we'd like to start with our uh, uh, faculty guest speaker, uh, Dr. Arthur, uh, if you could go ahead and uh, ask a few questions. Sure. Um, I'd like to commend Ali and, and Alex for leading this effort. As we study surgical procedures, and thrombectomy is um, perhaps one of the most effective surgical procedures in neurosurgery in terms of effect on patient life and ability, um, there are lots of different kinds of evidence that can be brought to bear. Um, everyone is, I think, aware that initially thrombectomy was studied with several very poorly designed trials in 2013, and then there were a rash of trials demonstrating tremendous effectiveness in 2015. Those trials were randomized, controlled, double-blind, adjudicated trials, um, which are useful um, in some scientific study uh, questions. This is a uh, very large registry of self-adjudicated um, uh, outcomes, and so it's a very different kind of evidence. And the questions I have for you guys really are aimed at helping us as surgeon physicians to understand how we can evaluate um, this sort of evidence in comparison to other kinds of evidence. Uh, the first thing I want to ask about is posterior circulation stroke. Uh, in reference to those earlier trials, posterior circulation stroke has been largely uh, ignored or excluded um, from uh, the thrombectomy trials. Um, there are people uh, within our field uh, who believe that basilar occlusion posterior circulation stroke really needs an RCT to look at its effectiveness and at, at a case selection. Um, and there are others who have compared this to a, a study to see if a parachute's effective uh, in falling from an airplane. 
because we know that the outcome for untreated posterior circulation stroke is, is, is miserable. How do you feel that uh, this, this cohort and, and, and these sets of findings impact uh, future study of technique and patient selection for posterior circulation stroke? Absolutely. Now, Lee, I'll take this uh, first stab, if that's okay with you. An excellent question. And you're absolutely right. So, so posterior circulation basal occlusions have been really neglected and not studied carefully. And they've not been put to the, to the test of level 1A evidence. That being said, um, you know, many, many physicians, as we all know, across, across the, uh, the world do treat them. Um, a couple of things that makes the posterior circulation unique, I think one is the, uh, the disease is entirely different. Uh, we've seen that it's definitely worse outcomes, and that's from a variety of reasons. You know, delayed a presentation because the symptomatology is quite different, and sometimes it's an obtained patient, and it takes, you know, physicians in the ER a while to figure out what's going on. Definitely a, a smaller degree of tolerance to ischemia and less collateral, built-in collateral reserves, especially to the brainstem. So I think all those factors, you know, put them behind the eight ball, just on, just even when they arrived to the angio suite, and we saw that with longer, you know, delays of treatment. But what we've shown, I think well, the data helps back to your question about whether it should be a randomized trial. And I think it is a parachute. I think uh, I, I personally wouldn't feel comfortable doing so. You know, I think this evidence uh, from this paper in particular helps us with that because the, the um, it was found to be, so thrombectomy for posterior circulation was found to be not any more dangerous than the anterior circulation. So the, the complication rate is 6% and the symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage of 3% were no different for the anterior circulation. So I think the outcomes, we can clearly say that the outcomes are worse because it's a different disease state, they present later, they're behind the eight ball, and the thermectomy itself is not any more dangerous in these patients. So I think if we can if we can continue to improve on education, identifying these patients earlier, I think the 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 outcomes will catch up. They may not you know catch up entirely, but I think the gap between the anterior and the posterior circulation that will narrow. So personally, um, I would not feel comfortable, you know, doing a randomized trial. I think we have sufficient evidence, and we've done that even with anterior circulation, where often, you know, two thirds of our practice uh, extends to, you know, indications that are outside of the, the trial criteria. So I think we've done that in other areas. So for me personally, I would not think we've needed the basilar. Um, and like I mentioned, I think this data helps us because it shows that the, the thermotic procedure is no more dangerous than in the anterior circulation. Anything to add to that, Ali? Yeah, that, 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 that's exactly the, great. Um, so the other thing that I want to point out, that doesn't, there were findings that, that we, we show does not mean that there's no chance for, for trial in posterior circulation or randomized trial in posterior circulation. But given that there is a similar safety profile as we demonstrated in this work in the real world, which if anything should have a higher complication rate compared to the basically clinical trials, given the, that this is a, um, a little bit more uh, heterogeneous population with a lot of uh, comorbidities that may not be may have been accounted in the, clin in the clinical trials or randomized trials. The other thing that we actually there's still room for is um, comparing different selection criteria, with, which will not fit as a parachute trial, but rather instead of saying thrombectomy versus medical management, um, given that this is not only our work, but other centers across the country and other peoples have shown that there's efficacy and at least safety for these posterior circulation thrombectomies. So potentially a good randomized trial will be one that compares different selection criteria and at the same time provide, reiterate the safety data that we've shown and others have shown, but also help optimize the patient selection for this cohort. Okay. Uh, my second question is is similarly tilted. I'm I'm interested in in how we can use these data. 
As, as you know, there are other studies, predominantly of anterior circulation stroke, that have indicated that aspiration technique and retriever ten technique are essentially equivalent in an RCT uh, compass for one. Uh, here in this large cohort, there's, a, there's an apparent benefit to aspiration over thrombectomy, but again, this is a very different trial design. One of the reasons that, that self-adjudicated registries are, are thought to be less reliable uh, to guide therapy than RCTs is that uh, RCTs balance confounding and we're vulnerable to confounding. So Ali, maybe I'll start with you on this. I know that you did a fairly careful analysis. You looked at a variety of confounders, including uh, center effect, whether it was one center was better than another center. Um, what, what confounders uh, do you think could be possible that might explain uh, these results? In other words, We've we've drawn a conclusion here that aspiration is is better than throm than than stentriever for the posterior circulation. What could we potentially be missing uh, given the nature of the data set? So first, I'm going to reiterate exactly what, uh, what what you said about controlling for confounders. We did control for things that we believe also we have the bandwidth to control in such a study, including actually the centers. We want to make sure the centers experience does not affect um, the fact that outcome is not the reason that one technique is better. Um, there are definitely things that could still be controlled for that we didn't. One of them is uh, the experience of the center in terms of uh, um, the experience of the operator himself uh, with these procedures um, and the experience of the center with either posterior circulation stroke or with thrombectomy in general. Um, and the um, additional thing that also could, could compound these um, uh, retrospective studies is um, um, basically if, if there's the type of outcomes, the 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 the, the assessment of outcome at ninety days. Um, some some centers would use um, 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 like a neurologist, a, a physician who's who's doing this trial. Some some centers would rely on nursing home reports, especially with patients who. Uh, and get to rehab and don't come back in their follow-up visits. There's definitely a higher rate of loss to follow-up in these retrospective studies in absence of 90-day outcomes. Um, but uh, in clinical trials, this this data is much more limited. So I think these two things could contribute to, to this data. As, as I said also, we, we try to control for everything that we can or um, is available to our in our data set, but these things are still contribute to the outcome. Anything to add to that, Alex? Yeah, what I, just, I would just add a philosophical point on, to, to piggyback on where you left out, Adam, is so the randomized trials, you know, obviously are crit critically important, um, high quality, but sort of a narrow population, you know, a small percentage of populations will apply to them. These largest registries, and you're right, all the limitations that you, Ali, outlined are completely correct. I think the these larger registries, and it's getting larger and larger, you know, every month, and we are switching to prospective data collection. We are working to collab adjudication. And when you get to those that level um, of quality, when you when you combine it with the quantity, and then again the real world practice, which is you know the the not so clean patients, you know the older patients, lower aspects, comorbidities, et cetera, et cetera. But when you have that large sample size, I think that these registries will have increasing importance in the future. But you're absolutely right about those limitations. So I was wondering, I mean, since there isn't a center effect, uh, one, th one, would, one would imagine that selection bias could be a real problem. So let's say we're wrong. Let's say aspiration isn't better than centrivers uh, for posterior circulation stroke. Is, is it possible that, that physicians are looking at individual cases and choosing to use primary aspiration in easier cases, potentially with a softer clot? I mean, what, what I, I just, 
I don't mean to attack the study. Obviously, I think these data are very important, but I, I'm interested in scientifically minded investigators' opinion of where we might be missing selection bias. Yeah, you want to take the first stab at this great question? Yeah, this is a very important question, and there's actually one of the data that we reported in the supplement is 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 how much of each center does aspiration for a center retriever. So the good thing about having a registry that um, like star um, the star registry is that we have centers who have different primary approach. So most of most of our centers had either a primary approach or or each operator has a primary approach that uses almost all, most of the time. Um, so so the centers that are center retriever happy because this is their practice uh, and they rarely lose adapt. Uh, or aspiration, there are centers that are aspiration heavy and they rarely do center retriever. And in our study, we had a mix of both centers. So most of our center retriever data comes from centers that who are primarily used center retrievers and they're um um and they're thrown back to me. There is definitely a chance for um, um bias here and there, but most of our most of the patients, most of the data was consistent with this um with this um um um, assumption. And what I mean by that is that most of our center retriever data came from the center retriever cent primary centers, and most of our aspiration data came from centers who prefer aspiration. So um, that will decrease a little bit in terms of the, the operator's bias in selecting aspiration versus center retriever because it's based on the history of us, uh, of the operator rather than more, uh, rather than the patient themselves. But isn't what you just described a center effect? I mean, how can you obviate the potential that that is a uh, a misinterpretation of the fact that there are centers that use aspiration primarily who might simply be better at the procedure or better at pace, to patient selection than than the centers that tend to use retriever primarily. Yeah, as I said, there's a there's a, as I said, there's some centers that have the mix and they fall in between and they use primarily center retriever or aspiration depending on the operator. But uh, but I'm saying the vast majority of people fall in within the spectrum what the center prefers, and this this crossover that that happens in some of these centers is what made the mix and center did not have it as a center itself. All right, um, good answer. I have a couple of questions that um, I'd like to ask as well. Um, but it's been a, it's been a great discussion so far. Um, uh, it appears that most of the questions uh, have been uh, examining the scientific uh, basis of these uh, multi-registry uh, studies. My uh, questions and thoughts uh, are more from the uh, clinical uh, standpoint. Um, I, I read in the article that um, uh, there was no NIH uh, stroke scale score cutoff for performing uh, posterior circulation uh, thrombectomy. I know one of the controversial topics in all of thrombectomy, particularly posterior circulation thrombectomy, uh, is that um, uh, patients with uh, low NIH stroke scale score that present with a large vessel occlusion, in this case, today our topic is posterior circulation. So let's say somebody with a low NIH stroke scale score presents with uh, a posterior circulation uh, occlusion. Uh, uh, what is uh, uh, your uh, clinical uh, experience uh, and what is your um, uh, bias in terms of treating those patients? That's a great question, Ali. I'll take the first stab. That's okay with you. Yeah, and you're right. And and your question gets at the matter that there's there's a lot of variability in practice. You know, within centers, even probably among practitioners. You know, within a center. So, our experience, unless unless the NIH is extremely minimal, um, you know, our, our tendency is to try to open, for example, basal artery occlusion. Um, as far as the timing, and you're right, you know, timing, you know, delayed presentations, higher NIH, and by the way, I, I skipped over that in this 
this uh, overview of this paper, but those are all also shown to be very important predictors of outcome, um, as had been shown previously. But you know, younger patients, um, even presenting at a, at, a, at a quite a long delayed interval, we often will institute an MRI, a quick MRI, and diffusion weighted image sequence to look at the brainstem uh, viability. Patients presenting within the first six to eight hours who are less likely to do the MRI. So that's the protocol that we sort of gravitated to. You know, higher NIH short scale aerial presentations for sure. Higher NIH with delayed presentations, maybe using an MRI to help. And then the you know earlier late presentation with low NIH, especially the later presentation with a very low NIH, we may be choosing medical treatment first with close observation. But you're right. I, I bet you every center has a different protocol um, and a different approach, which does add some confounders. Thank you. Thank you for that, uh, uh, Dr. Arthur. Uh, would you like to share your experience and observation on this uh, particular topic? Uh, with regard to um, uh, selection for low, for low NIH, yeah, patient selection in a circumstance of low NIH with a large vessel occlusion in the posterior circulation. You know, fortunately, that's a relatively rare occurrence in my clinical practice. I'm more, I more frequently see an M1 occlusion in somebody with a low NIH, but somebody with a true Basler occlusion and a low NIH. Um, I, I just don't see that very frequently. If there's if there's an apparent basilar occlusion in a low NIH, when we investigate that, more often than not, what we've seen is that it's a chronic condition, um, either um, symmetric caudal regression or you know chronic atherosclerotic disease. And obviously, those are things that are not amenable to fixing with a, a thrombectomy. You know, no matter what the technique is. Um, so, 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 I, so I would, I, I guess, I would say, the the dilemma of the low NIH patient is a relative unfrequent occurrence in the posterior circulation, at least for me. Do, do others on the line have a different experience? Yeah, I agree with you, hundred percent. We have seen here uh, during my fellowship a couple of cases uh, that have been really difficult cases where you have a situation where you have a occluded vertebral artery on one side, and then you have a disease atherosclerotic, uh, most often V4 segment right along its entry into the dura of the vertebral artery it has very high grade atherosclerotic disease, uh, and that then presents with occlusion, and you, we've gotten an MRI in those patients within six hours of presentation, and it shows very minor posterior circulation hits, and we've maintained them on medical management. and. Uh, Unfortunately, you know, a couple of those patients had subsequent uh, decline. We did not take them for mechanical thrombectomy, uh, and uh, uh, it turned out that they progressed in terms of their posterior circulation uh, infarcts. So my question it came from that clinical experience as to what would, should be done for those particular patients who perhaps uh, have a unilateral vertebral occlusion with a high-grade stenosis on the other side, can't really get a good picture of the basal or on the CT angiogram, uh, and uh, it appears that there is a robust uh, uh, fetal type posterior communicating that fills the top of the basilar. Uh, and in those type of equivocal situations where the patient does have some MRI changes within a six hour uh, time window of presentation, uh, if you have any perspective on that on how you might manage it. I guess I would argue that what you're describing is a chronic atherosclerotic problem and that's not amenable to thrombectomy as a solution. We do see those. We see a lot of atherosclerosis just, just the way you described. And I think if you can identify and understand what's happening with those patients, those are the patients who might require a, an urgent angioplasty and stent treatment. I, I, I have to, or, or angioplasty alone. 
I have to admit that my own bias is that the utility of uh, MRI or perfusion imaging for true posterior circulation, you know, thromboembolic stroke is, is relatively low. Um, I, I worry that we, as we spend more time looking at advanced imaging in patients who have a true emergent large vessel occlusion or emergency large vessel occlusion, you're, you're just finding a way to select away from patients where I, often I feel that with good quality angiography, you can understand quicker what's going on and how best to address it. But, you know, the finding in this study is that aspiration thrombectomy is more effective than stent trever thrombectomy. In the, in the clinical scenario that you're describing, I would argue that neither technique uh, will be sufficient. In other words, if somebody's dependent upon a diseased, highly stenosed uh, vertebral artery, you're going to have to address that pathology with something other than a thrombectomy. Yeah, and I agree. I think um, absolutely when, when you have a chronic atherosclerotic and that's the presentation that you know it's going to be a different disease, you know, these can build over time. There can be collaterals that can build up. <clears throat> they can have perhaps a longer time that where they can tolerate ischemia. Um, and we at Ali and I just were speaking about this right before then. We have looked at our ICAS experience in start the anterior circulation, and we did show, you know, prolonged procedure times to, to 2.5x procedure times. Um, and higher complication rates, but ultimately the uh, the same chance of a good outcome zero to two. And these are the angioplasty and angioplasty plus or minus sending patients in the anterior circulation. For the posterior circulation, we didn't quite have enough patients with this data set that we analyzed in the fall. But now, like I mentioned, we're over 7,000 patients and we're going to be focusing on ICAST patients in the posterior circulation because I do, I agree with Adam Arthur, it is a very entirely different disease state, um, just different approach altogether. Um, and we're going to be looking at experience specifically and looking at um, predictors of outcome and procedure times, uh, penalization rates, stenting versus not stenting, uh, hemorrhagic complications, outcomes, et cetera, et cetera. And that will be a uh, forthcoming. Thank you for sharing your experience with that. Ali, I have a, a question. There's a certain percentage of patients in this particular study that was treated with angioplasty and stenting as the treatment modality for posterior circulation strokes. Um, uh, I'm curious if there was a, a, a subgroup analysis on that particular group of patients, because that's a technique that's remarkably different from the combined centrifugal and ADAPT versus ADAPT versus centrifugal alone. Yeah, so it's a good question. And in, in our comparisons, given that this is completely different, basically etiology as well as um, um, treatment approach, in our comparisons, this subset was this was excluded. We didn't include it in our comparison group. We only compare, compare techniques between ADAPT and Centrifever or combined approach. So this group was left alone. We did not actually um, report or actually investigate specifically how this subgroup compared to the other ones, but it's definitely something we're going to be doing now, with, especially that the numbers were relatively lower in, uh, in, our, in, in that cohort. It was 10% of the posterior recirculation papers, around 30 patients. So it's not sufficient really to get uh, good evidence. Now, we, when, when, um, as we grow as a um, um, star registry and we have significantly higher number of these patients, uh, it's worth a new analysis to see if these patients behave differently or if these patients either present differently and have different admission characteristics to to compared to the rest of the posterior circulation stroke. Uh, stroke. Um, so that's work in progress, as you just mentioned. Thank you for that uh, for that uh, excellent uh, uh, summary. I think some of our viewers uh, will be interested in uh, uh, just uh, uh, 
recap of some basic techniques uh, described with respect to thrombectomy. Um, I think the uh, ADAPT technique was uh, noted to be uh, superior in terms of just overall uh, outcomes. Uh, I'd like to open it up to our uh, guest faculty and Ali uh, to share how you uh, think about uh, ADAPT technique and uh, what kind of uh, instruments and catheters you would consider using for a procedure like that. So, um, I guess I'll take that first. Um, I, I think if it's truly a thromboembolic posterior circulation stroke, um, one of the things I, I like about uh, the, the, the current work we're discussing is that it confirms my pre-existing bias, uh, which is that aspiration thrombectomy is extremely effective. Um, uh, there are times when clot lodges relatively low, uh, and, and in those cases, even a balloon guide with direct aspiration can be useful. Um, but but in the standard run-of-the-mill non-atherosclerotic, you know, thromboembolic uh, occlusion of the basilar, uh, I've had very uh, good success with uh, direct aspiration. I, I tend to use uh, a more classic ADAPT technique, which is not the, you know, no touch or, you know, uh, contact ADAPT. I, I will uh, take uh, a, a suction, smaller suction catheter all the way up through the clot and then pull that back under aspiration while aspirating on the larger aspiration catheter, which I push into the clot and then remove that. And I find that to be a, a very useful first pass technique, particularly in the posterior circulation. As far as specific catheters, I, yeah, I'm just going to avoid that. We're, we're, in a, when it, we're in an era where there are a lot of different companies getting into the you know, aspiration catheter making game. And um, uh, I think that's a, a space that is interesting to watch evolve. I think there's more than one product out there that can get you uh, good results with aspiration thrombectomy. Yeah, I would agree. And this is Alex, by the way. So I think, and everybody, that's a great point, Adam, that everybody that's the direct aspiration slightly differently. And ours certainly has evolved over the years. Our traditional approach um, was a femoral approach, and I'll mention our radio approach more recently. With femoral approach, an eight French system, eight French guide in the vertebral. <clears throat> and you're right, if it's a, if it's a top of the basilar, you're thinking thromboembolic. If I see a VB junction or a mid basilar, I'm already thinking, uh oh, this could be some underlying plaque. So that's sort of my first you know, tenons are raised at that point. But if it's a top of the basilar apex <clears throat> uh, filling defect and we're thinking a, a thrombus, I will pass that clot and position my delivery microcatheter into the P2 segment. As my aspiration catheter, which would be an 071 or 072 size, as is being driven around the VB junction of the basilar, as is approaching the clot, then I'm actually withdrawing my delivery catheter and wire, and that kind of railroads or slingshots it. And then I allow the catheter unimpeded by the delivery catheter, sort of an open aperture um, in a larger surface area. And key, you know, the key thing here, obviously, is sizing, you know, the, the right catheter as large as you can get in safely in, into that vessel. So you can go over the clot and along the side of it. But Pulling back on the on the microwire and the delivery catheter as the aspiration catheter approaches the clot, and then as you continue to pull the microcatheter microwire, now they may be at the V3, V4 segment in the in the aspiration catheter. The aspiration catheter is passed gently, as as fast as 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 far as it'll go off into the P1 segment over the clot, and thereby ingesting the clot, <clears throat> uh, mechanically ingesting, and then the aspiration tubing. As I mentioned, then at that point, you, you turn the aspiration, then you're kind of flushing the toilet because the ingestion's already happened in the catheter. But area does aspiration differently, and things have evolved, and um, ultimately, it's what works in your hands. So that was a traditional setup more recently. 
uh, we convert to radial for, for many of our other procedures. So if, it's, um, if it looks like it's a basal or apex against something we suspect is thrombus, not after, which would be a harder, see harder and longer procedure. We'll go radial with the six French system, <clears throat> go primarily with our aspiration catheter as the guide essentially over our microwired um, microcatheter or the glide wire, uh, place into the vertebral artery, do the run through the aspiration catheter again, temporarily serving as the guide, then delivering the aspiration catheter just as I did with the femoral approach. And then uh, usually the ingestion with these larger catheters is an ingestion of the tubing where you have to pull the catheter all the way back. That would be the downside of this approach because it's a guide, so you'd have to re-deliver the, um, the aspiration catheter. But in our experience, the first pass effect with these purely thrombotic occlusions is so high that it really seems to be very quick. So we use the aspiration catheter as a guide, uh, do the imaging, it now becomes the aspiration catheter over the delivery wire, aspirate, ingest, pull the catheter back to the V4 segment, and now the aspiration catheter functions as the guide again, do our run, confirming patency, and then and then we exit. And that, for the radio approach, has been very quick and uh, efficacious for us. Great. Thank you. I'd just uh, I'd like to share uh, uh, my gratitude and thanks to all the faculty uh, and uh, uh, Dr. Ali Alawiya, Dr. Spiota, and uh, Dr. Arthur for sharing your uh, insights on this topic. We discussed not only the scientific basis, but also some clinical uh, and real-world techniques of uh, uh, posterior circulation uh, uh, thrombectomy. I'd like to uh, encourage uh, all of our uh, listeners uh, to log into cns.org uh, to have the opportunity to claim CME uh, for this particular podcast uh, activity. The CME version is uh, complimentary for all uh, CMS members. Thank you again for uh, all of our uh, uh, members for uh, uh, joining in, and uh, thanks to all the guest faculty. Uh, this concludes our uh, uh, November CNS uh, Journal Club podcast. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, Ramal. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you all. Thank you very much for the opportunity.